I'm Ece Özdemiroğlu. I'm Sabina Apetz. And I'm Jill Duggan. Welcome to season two of Join the Dots. We've spent our careers giving advice on the environment and learned that choices are never straightforward. But working through the complexity is rewarding. Here in each episode, we explore the issues surrounding an everyday choice to help you decide what's best for your health, wallet and our planet. You can find more information about this and other episodes on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com. And we'd love to hear from you on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Hello, today we're going to talk to our own Jill Duggan about energy prices, the situation driving them, and what we can do about it. Hello, Jill. How are you? I'm, I'm good, Sabina. Very good. That's good to hear. So what is happening with energy prices? Why are they going up? So there's a few things, and I'm going to apologize and go at this from a Eurocentric point of view. I know that a lot of the same things are impacting around the world, but in Europe particularly, What we've seen is as we've come out of lockdowns, there's been a surge in industrial activity globally, which has pushed up demand for oil and gas, and that's caused price rises. That surge in demand, particularly for industrial use, is to do some of the manufacturing that hadn't been happening during pandemic lockdowns. So that's one aspect. In Europe, another aspect is actually having a year when the wind didn't blow as much as it normally did. So as we shift to renewables in northwestern Europe, there's quite a lot of reliance on wind and offshore wind power. There's also obviously other forms of renewables being used, but we had a particularly still year, which meant that the amount of energy available from renewable sources was lower than it might have been. And that meant that stocks of oil and gas in particular were depleted. So that was the situation that we faced and was causing a big hike, although a price hike that we expected to last for a couple of years. And the reason that we expected it to last for a couple of years was that we thought industrial activity would generally calm down that the increase in renewables of all types would smooth out that particular non-windy year. And that as we shift to more renewables, the other thing that is very important part of this is how do we reduce our demand for energy in some of the things that we need to reduce demand for energy so that we can in the future run our cars on electric and electrify almost everything we possibly can without putting greater demands for fossil fuels. So those are the background. And then, of course, not that many weeks ago, but partly driven, I am certain, by that hike in fuel prices, Russia invaded Ukraine or, you know, however you want to describe it. And that caused an upset in that One of the reasons I think that Russia probably did that was because they saw that most of the countries in the Western Alliance, NATO countries, who would be sympathetic to Ukraine would be suffering high energy prices, that if they decided not to buy from Russia, and there's uh, Finland, for example, gets 97% of its gas from Russia, but luckily Finland doesn't use a lot of gas. So, you know, there's a very complex picture across Europe as to the greatest dependency, but that as countries, they would be dependent 
on continuing to buy Russian oil and gas. And as they move away from that, that will cause prices to increase further. And that's a bit of what we're seeing. So if you're a NATO country, the kind of strategy is, firstly, diversify your supply away from Russia. That doesn't do anything to reduce global demand. It doesn't do anything to reduce prices. It just means that you're choosing to look for other suppliers apart from Russia. And some of those other suppliers have said that they're not going to increase their production because they want prices to go higher. Because the consequence of that is we're sending a lot of money to Russia at the moment to buy oil and gas from them. So that's a very short-term thing, which is purely political, is diversify your supply. The other things you can do in the short term is, and I know everybody kind of rolls their eyes when they hear it, but you can turn down your room thermostats by a degree. And in some countries, they're recommending you do that by two degrees. And that can have a dramatic impact. I think I saw that the International Energy Agency predicted that a one degree reduction in room temperatures during a winter could save as much as 6% of gas use. So it can be really impactful to do that, which hence the sweater. I think it's also very important for homeowners to think about how they get their homes ready, not just to increase our energy uh, resilience to reduce our energy bills, but also make sure that we do get ready and prepare ourselves to become part of a net zero economy. That's really interesting. Let's talk about this issue of renewables and what happens when the wind doesn't blow, because I see a lot of people gleefully jumping on some of these challenges as an argument against renewables. And there, it's a multidimensional problem. But let's explore that a little bit. I mean, it is true that the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine, but there are means of storing electricity as well, even when generated from that. Quite often that storage is short-term and expensive. And there are also interconnectors. So one of the things that's beginning to be discussed, particularly in Europe, is a high voltage direct current interconnector that can connect sunny countries with windy countries to help even out the peaks and troughs of energy supply from renewable sources. For those of you who are fortunate enough to have some photovoltaic self-generation capacity in your home, increasingly the battery technology that can go with that and extend the life and the domestic usage of your self-generated electricity is improving. And so more and more people are getting small batteries in the home that helps with that. And industrially, there are bigger batteries. So battery technologies and the cost of batteries are improving dramatically. And they're helping to bridge this gap between the intermittency. Of course, there are some renewable technologies that are not intermittent, that have not been fully exploited yet. So tidal power is one in particular that there's not been that much investment in really developing that. And that is, you know, that tides are consistent and they don't suffer from intermittency. And clearly in some large continents, they're not always going to be available or a useful technology, but there are many coastal areas of the world where they can be. So it is really, there is more work to be done on the investment, the research and development side than we've done so far. But what we have done in offshore wind, onshore wind and photovoltaic technologies over the last decade have dramatically reduced the cost of these so that they are more than competitive with fossil fuel technologies. It is actually cheaper to build renewable capacity now 
than gas, oil or coal. And they compete very, very favourably. They're a lot cheaper than nuclear. But of course, that is one option that is on the table. Many countries, not all by any means, that see that as a way of dealing with the intermittency problem. But I think in general, I would say that intermittency problem, its seriousness, the ability to bridge that gap, we're much in a much better place to do that than we were 10 years ago. Two questions there. First of all, do you think that the, the fact that renewable energy is starting to get economically competitive with oil and gas is one of the reasons that we're seeing such dramatic pushback about the limitations of renewable energy? And then after that, I wanted to ask you about geothermal energy and what its potential is in a lot of places. But first, the headlines I see now are, are endless about the limitations and the potential environmental impacts of renewable energy. Well, firstly, we have to remember that oil and gas companies and the nuclear lobby are enormously wealthy and powerful lobbies that will say that, won't they? And I speak, I'm going to lay my cards on the table. I've worked on climate change for 20 plus years. So I believe climate change is probably the most serious global threat that we face and we really need to tackle it very quickly. So I'm not a climate skeptic. I'm not a climate denier, but there's a lot of money invested in trying to pursue and continue and lobby for continued use of oil and gas and coal. And so that needs to be taken into account. And at times like this, some governments seem more susceptible to that lobbying than others. But it doesn't help us in the long run. Now, let's be clear, in the short run, with the situation that we have globally, and I'm looking at this again from a, a European perspective, some difficult choices may be made in the short run about what we burn to create electricity. But what we ought to be clear about is we should not be investing in infrastructure in fossil fuels. That is a hiding to nothing. And it doesn't help us in the long run with the political problems of being dependent on states that had those resources rather than the one thing about renewable energy is it's much more distributed. Countries around the world have access to wind and solar power if they have the technologies available and the investment in them. There are not countries that have no wind, have no sun at all, and therefore it's possible to have much more distributed generation, and that gives us greater resilience. But therein lies the problem to the status quo, doesn't it? The fact that it's more equitable and distributed will shake up power structures. Also, it's interesting that as we hear more and more about the impacts of renewable energy, we take as the impacts of our fossil fuel generated economy as red. We don't even notice them. They're the background noise. They're the base state. We don't think about the geopolitical conflicts fueled, the environmental impacts. Those are considered the norm, aren't they? I mean, I would like to think that over the last 20, 30 years, we have considered those impacts far more. But it's true that there are many places in the world that until recently still found it very difficult to accept that actually burning fossil fuels in many cases has health impacts as well as climate impacts that as we've already described, you know, when there are limited resources and some states have disproportionate access to those resources, it's a license to print money. And that does not make for healthy democratic states in general. I would look at Norway and perhaps uh, recognize that there are exceptions to that. But, you know, it often creates circumstances in which you can get 
autocratic powers that can be quite aggressive and wield their power in a way that is probably not for the general good. So it's politically dangerous to do that. So yes, there of course there are lobbies around. One of the things that is quite true about renewable resources, because by their nature, once you've built them, there are not huge profits to be made. Nobody owns the sun or the wind. And therefore, they, the return on those investments is not the same as those huge oil and gas profits that we've seen. So it does require a very, very different business model to make that viable. And it also means that all of us potentially have the power to generate our own electricity if we've you know, given access to the technologies that we can put on the roof of our house or our community can use. You did mention geothermal, and I have to hold my hands up. I am not an expert on geothermal in any way, Sabina. But I, I think one of the things that is apparent is that uh, the technologies that we use for for heating and cooling properties, and of course cooling, it's always very hard. I'm sitting here in London. It's always very hard to remember that most of the world has a problem with cooling rather than with heating. But that is the case. How we get that is very important, and there is increasing interest in looking at the untapped resources that don't belong to anybody they, that that can provide us with the the means to heat and cool uh, our lives so you've kind of teased us a little about some of the mid and long term things we should be doing and i think we should discuss those before we're finished here but right now there are impacts. Fuel costs are high and people can't turn on a dime. So what are the impacts on people right now of the current situation? Well, as I said, it varies depending on the actions that governments have taken. So some governments are being more generous in the help that they're providing to their citizens. And some are actually doing some of the things which I would describe as the medium term. So the short term, it's turning down the dial or helping you pay your bills. And all of us can do that. So, you know, it, depending on your motivation, but if you turn down the thermostat now as we're heading into summer, all the gas that's saved now is gas that's available to be stored next winter. It's money that is not being spent, not being sent to Russia. And these are global prices. So every time we can reduce demand, we can reduce the demand globally, which causes prices to go down. So it's worth thinking about that. But many governments have got very imaginative and useful schemes to actually get our homes in a fit state to not need as much energy to heat and cool them. And that's using insulation. And one of the things I would say is anybody has access to a roof space. One of the cheapest, most cost-effective things you can do is go and get some mineral wool insulation or something, other type of insulation, non-flammable insulation, and make sure that your roof space is really, really well insulated because that is the cheapest and easiest thing you can do to make your home more comfortable from both heat and cold. Mineral wool, is that what I would call fiberglass? Rock wool, it has lots of different names. But basically, I think, you know, one one of the things we, we do know, and uh, Grenfell was a dreadful example of this, is that we need to use materials that we can rely on and do not put us at risk. But currently in some countries, ours for example, people are currently suffering and facing the promise of increasing fuel poverty, aren't they? They're really having to face the question, not just of heating versus eating, but really even just keeping the lights on, aren't they? 
They are. And actually, that's why I say the actions that the rest of us who can perhaps afford our energy bills, if it's still incumbent upon us to reduce our usage, if we possibly can, by th turning the thermostat, because that will help reduce prices. And I think at the moment we've been warned in the UK where we're both sitting, we've been warned that prices are likely to go up again. And so anything that we can do, even if we can afford it, to pay those bills actually helps those who can't afford it by reducing demand and helping bring prices down. The other thing I think we want to see is real action on insulation. Now, most people who are in fuel poverty, but not maybe in rented accommodation, whether it's public or private sector rented accommodation, and we really need to kind of crack this landlord-tenant problem and make sure they see next winter in, in well-insulated buildings. And that is something that can happen quite quickly with the right workforce. And again, we should be training people to do this work properly and do it in a way that gives confidence to homeowners and owner occupiers and tenants, inviting people into their homes. They need to feel that these are trustworthy people who are doing the right thing that's not going to damage where they live, but will in fact make them warmer and reduce their bills. So there's quite a lot that housing associations, local authorities, private landlords can do that will even you know, depending on their motivation it's going to help the planet it's going to reduce the bills of their tenants and it's going to send less money generally globally to russia and that will actually impact on, on that war that's being fought on the eastern edge of europe now 18 years ago when we bought our cottage here before we moved in we had contractors put in several inches of insulation i think what you would call mineral wool I would call fiberglass, and I can really see the difference after a snow between our house and the neighboring houses because the snow melts much more slowly. But I think based on things I've heard you say before, we had it put in much less thickly than you recommend. How much are you recommending? Well, the recommendation now, I think, is about 25 to 30 centimetres, which would be at least a foot, probably 18 inches in imperial. That that would be a good place to be. And, you know, it's actually min rock wool, mineral wool, whatever, you, fiberglass. It's not that expensive. It's just a bit annoying having to go up in the loft and clear things out and do that. Yeah, I'm really glad we did it before we filled our loft with junk we'll never really need again. What other things? You, you've talked about turning the heat down a degree or two. Might I ask what temperature is your thermostat at? My thermostat at the moment is an 18, which might be too low for some other people. So, you know, it's whatever you're used to, just turn it down, you know, t turn it down a degree, two degrees. If you're some people have their thermostat a lot higher and I'm terribly conscious that there are people at the moment who are not turning their heating on at all. So when you turn your thermostat down, think you are actually helping those people for whom energy prices are too high. It has got to be about reducing demand. I notice, uh, at least in our place, a big source of heat loss is our doors. Windows are okay, but doors seem particularly bad. Is that a common weak point in housing stock? I, I'm sure it is. I'm not a. I'm not an expert on that. So I think you know, for everybody, they'll know where the drafts are. They'll need to think about what to do. Often get advice on what to do in terms of the sort of seals around the doors to help with that or the old-fashioned draft excluder sausage dog type thing at the bottom. I mean, all of these things will help. 
but actually getting your home properly insulated and recognizing that as we move towards heat pumps, using heat pumps, I've got a heat pump myself and it's it's been brilliant, actually. I'm very, very pleased with it. But as we move to generally moving towards heat pumps and alternative sources of uh, heating or cooling, insulating rooms as we decorate them is really important for many in European properties in the UK, there's a lot of Victorian properties that have got no underfloor insulation and losing a lot of heat through the floorboards. So looking at what you can do there, if you go on the Energy Savings Trust website, there's advice about how you can insulate below floorboards. I know people who've looked for tradespeople who will do this for them. It's very hard to get somebody. We really do need some more trained people who can do this work and do it well for us. And how do you find the trustworthy people to give you advice? There are accreditation schemes. So there's the Microgeneration Council, I think, in the UK. Most countries have some sort of accreditation scheme. Having said that, most countries have also experienced what every energy-saving insulation, energy efficiency drive I've seen anywhere in the world has often attracted all of the unskilled operators in when there's grants available. And so I do think that it needs a different level of oversight and regulation. One of the schemes that I've seen that has proved very popular is Solar Together, where local authorities bulk purchase solar panels for interested homeowners and oversee the contract to install them. And therefore, I don't think they're hugely money-saving in terms of there's not a big discount for the bulk purchase. But what you do get is somebody who could, you know, an organisation that can make a competent decision on who is able to do that work properly and give it some oversight and manage the contract, which I think all things that homeowners find quite difficult. Okay, that's interesting. So there are resources out there to help us a little. Are there people that can come in and really assess not just microgeneration and not just insulation, but whole home assessment and are reliable? Well, I've heard of some. Again, I'm not, uh, Sabina, I'm not an expert on this. I'm somebody who's worked with policy people and worked with interested people. But I do know that there are firms out there that will offer that complete survey on how you can make and what you should be doing to make your home very, very energy efficient. It does require upfront expenditure. I've never seen anything that doesn't. The cheapest thing you can do is that loft insulation to the right level. But everything will cost money. I mean, you say you're not an expert on this, but policy people should, not you, but the, the people you're advising should be becoming experts on these things. It, our government should be engaging in this assertively, shouldn't they? Well, I think you've got to recognise, and I, I will recognise, that we're in a place where policies will change as not knowledge and understanding and technologies change. So and an example I would give is the the understanding of what is flammable and what isn't and how suitable materials are for use in domestic buildings, residential buildings. That's a very clearly one that needs tightening up. And I think in the UK in particular, there's been a lot of deregulation, which has not helped. The way policy is made in different countries doesn't always rely on experts in government. It relies on objectives and hoping to get the experts to come in and bring that knowledge into play. So, And we are in an area 
where we are looking for new technologies to help us do this. Now, um, there's been a big push for smart meters. I know our energy company tried to install one and it didn't work for various reasons. (laughs) But can you explain what does a smart meter do for the consumer? It gives you a much better idea of how much energy you're using at any one time. I've got a smart meter, actually. And because I've got some photovoltaic on the roof, I say smugly, I can see when I'm sending energy back to the grid and getting paid for it. Not very much, but I am. I can see how my energy use compares to last week's. I can see when I'm using a lot of energy and when I'm not. It does make me think about how I use energy and when I use energy. Because I have photovoltaic, I tend to run my washing machine in the middle of the day when there's the most light and sunlight, because then I can often do it without using almost any electricity from the grid, for example. So I think that what a smart meter does is give more information to consumers. If you put it in a cupboard and never look at it, it's not going to make any difference to the way you use electricity. But if you have somewhere where you can see it, then there is a psychological impact. And I can, for example, see that my use at this time of year is costing me a lot more than it was this time last year because energy prices have gone up. So it's showing me in any one moment what what I've spent that day, how much electricity I've used that day, and how much I'm using at that moment. Okay, so it's, it helps you because we have a set of choices. You have photovoltaics, we have flexibility. Are the smart meters much help to people that are struggling just to keep their houses warm or what what's the benefit when the benefit will give them information on how much energy they're using so if for example they've got lights on that are not low energy lights it'll show their energy uses there's a red amber green um, showing you how much energy you're using at any one time so it can help you manage your energy by reminding you that you might have something running I have been known when I look at my my smart meter, and I think, ooh, look at the smart meter display and think, I must have something running around the house that I'm not aware of, and I'll go and have a look. Okay. So I think in that respect, it can act as a reminder, but it is not going to, you know, it doesn't talk to you. It requires you to look at it and take in that information, and if you can, act upon it. Of course, you might argue that people who are really, really suffering from energy bills, it might discourage them from turning the heating on. It might actually lead to other implications. And and that's why I'm saying it's really up to us, those of us who can afford to pay our energy bills, to take the action to reduce demand because actually that makes it more possible for the people who need energy, who need warmth in the winter to be able to afford it. With the argument that if demand drops, so will prices. Although there's a There's quite a lot of hysteresis on that cycle, isn't there? There always seems to be much more alacrity in raising prices than lowering them again. And it depends on the pricing structure in any one country. Um, In the UK, as you know, there's a price cap that Ofgem used that used to be the high rather than the low, and now it's just where the prices are. It's like having a nationalised industry again, effectively, (laughs) really, isn't it? And in other parts of the world, there are different pricing structures, and quite often energy companies are state-owned. So, you know, what I can't do is tell anybody how it's going to work where they are, because there will be a set of circumstances that will dictate that. 
Okay. So we talked about heat pumps early on in our podcast. Anything new you have to share on heat pumps, which seemed to be the great white hope? Yeah, I think there are, I, I will say this again, I'm not an expert. When I installed, I mean, I did install a heat pump. It took me two years of not even knowing really what a heat pump was before I got one and not knowing that they were the solution. And I've worked, as I said, in climate for such a long time. There definitely are and the technologies are improving and some of the myths are being blown away. So heat pumps, I live in a terraced house in Zone 2 in London and heat pumps are not hugely noisy. They don't require massive radiators. They require slightly bigger radiators than old style gas central heating do but they're not massive and so there's a lot of myths around this some of the things that i think are coming is that there is an increasing look at whether to provide community heating through large heat pumps but i'm not a technical expert on heat pumps so i can't tell you what the developments are i just know that as with anything when there are strong signals from government that this is the way forward then there are lots of technological developments that will come along to help smooth that path that's exciting i thought that was one of the most interesting things from our episode on heat pumps that in some places they do this community generation and you get the economy of scale and sort of you're buying the heat rather than the system, which really is an ideal way to go. Yeah, and there's some things, so I think on old coal mines that generate some heat, there's lots of ways in which using existing sources of heat to heat people's homes, one, saves them money, which is really welcome, and two, helps helps save the planet. The the one thing I would say is that there's um, a lot of talk at the moment about hydrogen boilers, and that's not something... I would go down at the moment. There's a lot that we don't know about hydrogen. It is a short-lived but quite intense indirect greenhouse gas. So we need to look at getting better measurement on hydrogen, even green hydrogen, leaks and reacts with other gases in the atmosphere. So it reacts with methane, for example. So I think that there will be solutions to better contain hydrogen and there will be ways of just checking what those impacts are but at the moment we don't know a great deal and so although I think I've heard the UK government and other governments talk about putting some hydrogen in the gas grid that would probably not be a great idea we certainly need to know more before it happens so we're on the edge of new things but we should not dive in too quickly I think that's true and I think it's quite natural that when we're trying to solve a great big difficult problem like climate change that there are missteps along the way and there have been many. The reason that diesel cars for example were promoted for a long time particularly in Europe was because that their carbon footprint was far better than petrol cars but of course they had a disastrous downside in terms of air quality and health impacts. So, you know, th- there have been missteps. The first generation of biofuels that were mandated back in ooh, 2008, yeah, they were disastrous. So there's a lot of well-intentioned mistakes that happen along the way. That doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't take action, but we really do need to monitor what we're doing to review it properly and make sure that we learn from our mistakes. And Actually, you know, some of the good things that have happened, as I mentioned earlier, the cost of offshore wind, for example, has dropped far more than anybody anticipated. The cost of photovoltaic has dropped far more than anybody anticipated. The cost of battery storage has, I believe, dropped by about 80% since 2010. I mean, there are huge 
improvements being made in these technologies as we move towards them. And human ingenuity can do fantastic things. So I'm, I am, despite all of the, the difficult short-term issues we have, I am optimistic that we can solve these problems. So it's nice to have some hopeful information. So we have a couple layers of thought here. There are very short-term issues, which means where we can, we should be turning down our thermostats to reduce demand. We should be demanding that our governments support those that have few options. And wherever you are, there are people that are really squeezed and help should be provided for those. Those of us that have the luxury of starting to invest in alternative for insulating our homes, getting photovoltaics, replacing out for heat pump should be moving in that direction when they can. And I, I, I hear you arguing very strongly against us backsliding, resisting this argument that we need to maintain energy independence by allowing people to frack and drill again wherever they can. Yeah, I think that you're creating a continued dependence on fossil fuels, which is not good for the planet. There, as I said at the start, there will be some short-term difficult choices being made at the moment because energy prices are high and there is a war on the eastern edge of Europe. And those things will mean that there will be greater reliance on some fossil fuels from some places in the short term to try and get those energy prices down. What we don't want to see is investment in infrastructure in fossil fuels. And what we do want to see is the kind of task forces that we can put together to really properly insulate people's homes, get them ready for heat pumps, start installing those heat pumps, and really say that's the way that we will save money for people, as well as saving the planet, as well as getting cleaner air to breathe. Those are the things that we really need to be pressing for. And there are beginning to be some imaginative schemes that will help but by no means are they doing everything. In this country, we have elections coming up in May, local elections. There are elections in Australia this year. There are elections in most countries of some sort, either at local government or at national government level. So this is the time to really be pressing governments for that investment in the energy efficiency infrastructure and the renewables infrastructure that are going to ensure that we do not end up in this situation again in the future. So again, a few paths. There's renewables, there's replacement, but there's no free lunch. We have to look out for unintended consequences and surprises. We need to understand the implications of what we're doing. But none of this alone is going to get us out of our problems. We need to also reduce demand. We need to use less. We do need to use less. And there are some great success stories. So Sabina, you know, maybe we should we should think about finishing on a high note. But <laughs> if you remember, those of you who had maybe had a skybox or 10, 20 years ago, it was like a massive neon sign sitting on, you know, in the living room that you go in in the middle of the night and there'd be something really bright. And actually the the story that has been most successful is appliances and how we've managed to reduce the energy needs of our appliances whilst making them better. 
So our TVs, our washing machines, our tumble dryers, our cookers, we have been enormously successful by creating, you know, in Europe, we have the ABCDE standards and now and now you get the A triple plus and then they had to replace A with something even better because manufacturers were moving in that direction and they saw the need. Japan has had a top runners scheme that has worked equally well. So you take heart when we get the right incentives in place and that's usually consumer power then we have made enormous strides in reducing our energy use increasing our efficiency and if you look at if you look at what we've done in Europe we pretty much on on those things we've managed to reduce demand quite a bit and the other thing the other thing that we all need to bear in mind of course is transport and we've seen fuel prices go up for transport is to really think about when we use the car, when we don't use the car. Again, every time you fill your car with diesel or petrol, you're supporting a a global economy that's sending money to to Mr. Putin on a daily basis. No, that's a really good point. We, it would be easier not to drive cars if public transport outside London were better supported. We'd be very happy to dump a car or two, even if we could live life that way. But thank you. I, I, I really appreciate your insights. Also your patience for me pushing you on issues that are outside your remit. It's a fascinating and very complicated issue. And we all have a role to play and a stake in this, as do our children and grandchildren. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Sabina. Good to talk to you, as always. <laughs> Good to talk to you. Thank you for listening. Thank you to the rest of the team, Neil McCune and Anna Gunn. You can find more information about this and other episodes on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com. And we'd love to hear from you on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. <laughs>